All right, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time for the sermon, for the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Hear the word of the Lord to you. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies? and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Amen. I've been a pastor now for almost 20 years. Man, I'm getting old. I remember when I used to be able to say I've been a Christian, and now I could say I've been a pastor that long. Man. And one of the things that's always been a bit frustrating to me, I'm, I'm going to be a little, I'm going to share some of my pet peeves this morning, is the announcement time. You know the announcements at the beginning of the service? We rattle off, okay, at Tuesday at this time, we're, we did that this morning, right? And we're going to have this at this time and that at that time. And sure enough, what ends up happening, as soon as the service is over, people, Pastor, what time is, are we doing such and such? What day do we have Bible study again? When are we, you know, and I do the whole... So it's like, did I waste my breath? Come on, you parents have to be able to relate to me on this one. You know, it's like, mama me. Now to be, be, oh, and then, oh, one more thing I want to tell you. Then on top of it all, sometimes, one time someone came up to me, and they were out out and out angry. You never told us that so-and-so, this missionary was coming the certain day. And I had to go back to the cassette tape. In those days, we had cassettes to, to play it back and say, what did I say there? To prove to them that I made the announcement that this missionary was coming. Now, I'll tell you why. Now, we all have to admit, the announcements are like the, the least exciting part of the service. Can I get an amen? It's kind of simple. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's why we, we, we kind of tune out. We don't listen. Well, this is why I tell you this story. There's one announcement time I will never forget the rest of my life. It's this time I was in the pew, not the pastor. And my pastor uh, from Calvary Prez usually really motivates us with the grace of God, with the encouragement of the gospel. He's a great motivator. But this particular Sunday, he kind of uh, said something in his announcement that was uncharacteristic of him. 
he had mentioned for a number of weeks that these missionaries that we support as a church were coming soon. And they needed a family to host them for dinner because they had no place to stay that night and they didn't have some, any, uh, anything to eat. He did this Sunday after Sunday. And the Sunday before they were to come, this is what he announced. He said, oh, and by the way, would someone please bring in a bag lunch or something so that the missionaries will have something to eat in the church basement when they get here? Let's just say there are a lot of red faces in the congregation. And let's also say there are people like falling over each other to try to sign up. You with me? That's what we see here in James's epistle. We read the the letter of James, and there's some strong language. We tease and we say, man, he must be from Jersey, because he tells it like it is, right? Well, what happened was James looked around, and this is one of the reasons we chose to go through the book of James as a church, as a church plant here. He looked around at the church in his day that he was ministering to, and he saw something very, very troubling. Um... I could walk you through the book of James, but we, we, I'll just try to be selective here for time's sake. He saw that the poor among them were being mistreated. He saw favoritism in the congregation, and he saw that the rich were oppressing the poor, and, and this amongst those who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. Those who say, I've been justified by faith alone. And James looks around and goes, Looks like your faith is alone because I ain't seeing it. And sometimes when we see the different passages, so far he's talked about the poor uh, about three different times before we get to this text. Each time, I even hear commentators say, oh, when James gives just an illustration from how you know, this favoritism can show itself when we deal with the poor, he's not giving an illustration. That's the point. The point is, poor folk were coming in. This is literally what was going on. James wasn't making stuff up. You know, it's kind of like me say, I ain't making this stuff up. It really happened. Poor folk would come in dressed all raggedy. And when they would come in, the the pastor would go, hey, you you just sit sit over here on the floor by me. You know, my feet. And a wealthy person would come in with nice ring, nice clothes. And they go, ooh, we have a spot for you. The old days, we used to do that here. You know, we used to be able to sponsor a pew. You know what that meant. You paid for the best seat. So the poor person comes in. They got to find out, you know, where you can kind of slide them in. And James says, what is wrong with you? That's the context of what's going on here in this epistle. And when he comes and, and, and he speaks about, he says, suppose someone is among you and he doesn't have food and he doesn't have clothing. And you say, oh, go be filled, you know, be warm, and you do nothing. He says, what kind of faith is that? That's called dead faith. And I want to bring this up right from the get-go because I want us to see something here. A lot of folks have a problem with James. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Because he seems to say something in this text that contradicts the rest of the whole New Testament. Put it this way, Martin Luther said, this is a straw epistle, and it ain't from any Bible. It's not a Bible book. Throw it out. That's because he didn't understand it right. Because Calvin says, no, no, hang on, Luther. 
Let's show you something here. It actually, Paul and James are actually saying the same thing. They're just addressing two different issues. And I want to say that from the get-go so you have a clear understanding because it deals with the gospel. And that's it. When Paul writes about we are justified, he literally says this, by the way, and this is where people think there's a contradiction. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he says, But the man who does not work but trusts in God, who justifies the wicked, to him it is credited as righteousness. So what Paul is saying is, You don't rely on your own work to get you to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven. You you can't buy your way to heaven. you got to trust in the one who lived the perfect life for you. You put your full confidence, your living faith, in the living Christ who rose from the dead and ascended on high, and God credits you with his righteousness to your account. You are pure in God's sight the moment you believe. That's the gospel. Can I get an amen? amen? But now, all of a sudden, when James speaks... He says we're not justified by faith alone, but also by works, right? And so that's where it seems like, wow, there's a contradiction. And what I'm going to show to you is, first of all, there's two words that Paul and James use completely differently. And that's how you could see that they're not contradicting each other. The first one is faith, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. When Paul speaks about faith, he's speaking about the living confidence and trust in Christ alone a living, saving faith. When James talks about a faith, he talks about the kind of faith when somebody's starving right in front of you, you don't do nothing. And James is saying, is that, you really have that kind of faith that's connected to the Jesus who so loved us, he gave himself for us? Something ain't right here. That kind of faith by itself would be a dead faith, would not be able to save The second difference is when Paul talks about the word justification, he's talking about before the bar, the judgment seat of God, where God literally declares us righteous on the basis of what Christ did for us. Right? I know it was the what? It's not, I know it was my works. No, it's I know it was the blood. I can get another amen here, right? What? Preach it, brother. That's right. So what James is saying is this. When he uses the word justified, he means vindicated. We're going to see that later. In other words, in the eyes of men, right? I can't see by looking at Greg that he's justified, but he could show me he's justified by following Jesus and doing what he says. That's what we're going to get into. So I wanted to summarize that just in case while I'm going through the details, it gets a little murky. I want you to see clearly from the get-go that Paul and James are friends. They're brothers. They're approaching two different people, one group of people that think they can save themselves, Another group of people that ain't doing nothing and saying they're saved. Okay? So let's take a look at that. So this is what we're going to see. It's a very simple message this morning. Faith that saves and justified and justifies is a living faith that works. I'm going to repeat it again. Faith that saves and justifies is a living faith that works. Simple. And we're going to see two things. These are the two points that James makes himself. Number one, faith without deeds is useless. He uses that word over and over again. It's useless. It's dead. And then the second thing that James himself points out, he gives us evidence that faith without deeds is useless. So he makes the point, faith without deeds is useless. And then he says, now, you foolish man, you need evidence for this? Let's go to the Old Testament scriptures. I'll prove it. Okay? All right. Let's take a look at the first one, and we'll spend most of our time on that, so don't get nervous. 
when we're pretty far along and I say, okay, now we go to the second point. You're like, oh, we've been here 30 minutes. No, I won't do that to you. Okay. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. All right? Stanley C. Brown tells the story of a young boy. This is a great illustration on this. He was on an errand for his mom, and he just bought a dozen eggs. Right there, you think, we already know what's going to happen, right? A little boy goes to get eggs. He's walking out of the store, and what does he do? He trips and drops the eggs everywhere, man. They're busted. After all the eggs are broken, they're all, the, the sidewalk is a mess. The boy tried not to cry. A few people gathered to see if he was okay and, and to tell them how sorry they were. In the midst of the works of pity, one man handed the boy a quarter. Then he turned to the group and said, I care 25 cents worth. How much do the rest of you care? James would say, how much do the rest of you believe? Right? You get it? That's what James is saying. We're all saying, I believe, I believe. And he's saying, how much worth? There's no controversy here. Can a faith that has no deeds that proceed from it save a man? What James is saying, no way. What kind of faith would that be? It certainly wouldn't be a lively, robust, living faith that connects us to the living head, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would it? All of the authors of Scripture, not just James, point out that saving faith is a working faith. Now, I am going to mention a few Scriptures here. Hang with me. It's important. I'm going to quote a few, and let's see if some of these are familiar to you. This is in Matthew 25. You may have heard this. Our Lord Jesus. Everybody contrasts James to Paul. How about Jesus and Peter and all the other writers? But anyway, Matthew 25. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Remember that? Just a couple more. The Apostle Paul. For we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, right? Not by works. It's a gift of God, so that no one can boast. And then what's the very next line? For we are created in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works. That's Paul. One more from Paul, since he's there, this is the one they always contrast him with. Romans 1.5. Through Jesus and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. What comes from faith? Obedience. Paul talks about us being slaves to righteousness now. Hebrews. Remember that great hall of faith, they call it? The hall of fame of faith? Hebrews 11. I just want to show you the action verbs that go along with by faith. Right? This is the hall of faith here. 
By faith, Abel offered, that's action, right? A better sacrifice. Noah built, that's action. Ask my dad who was a mason. That's a lot of action. He built an ark. Abraham obeyed and went. Abraham offered Isaac by faith. Moses kept the Passover by faith. Rahab welcomed the spies by faith. Do I have to go on? Saving faith, this is what James is saying. Saving faith is a living, active, powerful thing. It changes our lives completely. Our actions will be changed because our hearts have been transformed by the grace of God. Someone once said, faith is the root of works. A root that produces nothing is dead. If anybody's ever worked on gardens, sometimes I pull out these dead roots, but you can see they are not living. Nothing coming from them. They're useless. I pull them out. I go, hasta la vista, or arrivederci. Right? The same way James says faith without works is dead. That's the big difference between Paul's exposition of what faith is and James's discussion of what faith is. Paul's dealing with a very living faith, like I mentioned, that connects us to Christ. Whereas James is clearly talking about a mere academic or an intellectual faith. Now look, pay close attention to what James actually says in verse 14. Listen, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? He doesn't say, what good is it if a man has faith? And doesn't have, he says, if a man says he has faith. See, we could say anything. And notice what he says. He doesn't say has some deeds. He says has no deeds. It's very important to see that. In other words, all words, no action. Paul and the other writers of scripture would agree 100% that that kind of faith is not a saving faith. And, and here's some proof for that, eight, verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, these are key verses for understanding what James is talking about here. So look at the definition of faith here. Faith is believing that God is one. James says, They believe that in hell. Now listen, don't disparage good truth, good doctrine, because James is teaching us good doctrine. And for those people who deny that God is one or they deny that, that Jesus is God, their faith isn't even as good as a demon's. The demons believe more than Pharisees and Jehovah's Witnesses. Amen? So he's not saying don't be orthodox. He's saying that's not enough. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I agree. That's like seeing a guy drowning and going, should you save? Should he be saved? Yeah, we should go save him. That should happen. And then continue to eat our lunch. Right? No connection there. No, James is clearly taking a swipe at this demonic faith. Because look, the demons believe, but do they trust Jesus? No. Remember when Jesus started teaching in the synagogue and, and a demon cries out, cries out? What does he say? He says, Holy One of God, have you come 
to punish us before the appointed time? They knew who he was. And I, I thought of something in my head that I can't say behind the pulpit. Let's just say they quaked. Amen? Their knees were knocking. Here's the other thing that I think is interesting. Some people were actually saying this. Well, well, some people have the gift of faith, and the other people have the gift of works. I just happen to be one of those people. <laughs> I just, I have the gift of faith. But, you know, you could go do the work, but I'm such a great believer. And James says, okay, great, great, perfect. Well, let, let's do this. You show me your faith by basically doing nothing. I'll show you my faith by my works. You get it? In other words, how could you possibly show me your faith any other way? How else can you show me you believe in Jesus if it's not by how you live? If there's no difference? James says, you talk all you want, man. Show me. Don't tell me. So James goes ahead and he turns to the Old Testament scriptures in case they didn't get it yet. And the second thing we, I want to show you just from this text, very simple. See, that wasn't that bad. Second one is evidence. We're going to see evidence that faith without deeds is useless. So what James does is he just gives us two examples. So he doesn't weary us too bad. He gives us two examples of such a faith that works. The one is from Father Abraham, the father of all believers, the father of the Jews. They claimed him as their head. He's the first one. And he's going to give an example from him. And the second one couldn't be any different than Abraham. It was a Gentile prostitute. The old days we would have said a lady of the night who changed her ways. She trusted in the God of Israel. When she saw the spies come and she recognized they were, their God was the God of Israel, the God of all, the one true God of heaven and earth, she switched sides right away. She says, I'm with them. She identified with Israel. And when the spies came, she did something crazy by faith she risked everything to send them the wrong way so that they wouldn't kill the spies when the when the her own people came you have spies here which way they go oh yeah they went that way you know she risked it because faith is risky real genuine faith steps out and it sacrifices if you have a so-called faith that takes no risks you really got a question If you never sacrifice at all for Jesus, what kind of faith is that? That's what James is saying. So let's take a quick look at at Abraham. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to try to be succinct. Verse 20, just to show you that James is on a roll here. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Okay, I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on just for a moment with me here so you understand what's going on. Paul, in his epistle of Romans, quotes the same verse, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul's whole point is, before Abraham did any works or did anything good, 
he simply trusted in God's promise. At the moment, he took God at his word. And in those days, God said, you're going to have a son. And and Abraham was like however old, like 100 years old or something. His wife's womb was like dead. And, And so he yet, he still believed God against all hope. He believed that God somehow, miraculously, was going to get him a son. And and God was so pleased with his faith, he credited it to him as righteous. So right there and then, God cleansed him and declared him holy. What James is pointing out is that some, I guess it was like 15 years later, maybe it was longer than that, I think, um, God fulfilled his promise. He has his promised little boy, Isaac, and he's kind of old enough to be walking. And God says, I kept my promise, right? And Abraham's like, yep, now I want you to go and sacrifice the boy. Think about that test. I waited all these years. I trusted you for this son, and now you want me to sacrifice him. Now, most of us would have said, no can do, right? Abraham got up right away. As soon as he heard from God, he started packing, started getting ready. Um, He was he um, tied some, a bundle on his son Isaac's back, and he said, let's go. We have to go sacrifice. God said. And listen, the boy goes, where's the sacrifice? Remember the story? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice, my son. The whole time he's going, with no one in his heart, he's going to have to sacrifice his own son. And it tells us in Hebrews what he was thinking. In Hebrews 11, it says, because Abraham uh, thought in his mind, knew in his mind that God could raise even the dead. He so believed in the promise of God, he says, even if I kill him, God's going to have to raise him because he promised that I would be ble- everybody would be blessed through my son. And you know what happened. Some of you know what happened. Right when he was ready to plunge the knife in, the angel stopped him and said, stop. Now I what? Know that you fear God. And he said, now because you've done this, Abraham, oh, 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 how I'm going to bless you. And all the nations on earth are going to be blessed because of your faith. All James is pointing out there, he's not using justification the same way that Paul was using justification. He's using it in the sense that Abraham's faith was vindicated. When he went with works to obey what God said by faith, it was vindicated. It was shown that he was a believer. God already knew his heart 15 years ago. He didn't need proof in that sense. But now the whole world knew. Abraham was the genuine article. This is good stuff. I used to be afraid of this epistle because I'm a Pauline disciple. Man, when I first got saved to hear that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, it was like revolutionary. You know why? Because I looked at the commandments Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And I said, I can't even start doing that stuff. I screw up as soon as I even start thinking about doing it. Right? Think of all the commandments of God. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul was pointing out, cursed is everyone, he says in Galatians, that does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So guess what that means? (laughs) We're all cursed. If we're trying to earn God's favor, by obeying the law. You with me? And the good news of the gospel is Jesus became a curse for us so that in him we're righteous. But now, here's the beautiful thing. James agrees 100%. The passage before the one we were preaching on today, if you would have been with us last week, James points out if you break one of the commandments, you broke them all. Wow. 
Imagine, imagine if you could keep nine of the ten, which I can't, and then you just mess up on the one, and it's like, well, now, now you blew them all. And the wonderful thing that James says, the next verse after that passage, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Sounds like something Paul would say. I just want you to see this very clearly before I go to my, my closing part and we talk a little, about, a little bit about some application. I want to end with, with you seeing the context of this because I think it's so very important. This epistle is deeply concerned. James is deeply concerned. God is deeply concerned with how the body of Christ deals with the poor. First of all, the poor among us. Is there favoritism? Are you withholding their wages? Are you treating them unjustly? If they're coming starving, do you say, God bless, here's a track, or here's a good book that tells you about getting fed? Or do you take them over and give them a sandwich for crying out loud? Right? Do you make a sandwich and put it, put it in the basement so the missionaries can eat? Right? One of, the, one of the reasons our missions trips that we have here have such an impact on folks that come is because their faith is put into practice almost on a daily basis. Because, because instead of just writing a check, which we hope you do that and bless people, you actually go out and meet people that have need. And you find out they have real names. They're human beings. They need God's love. They need your love. And you need them. Because James says, God, has not God granted the poor to be rich in faith? You know, we raise our own support to be here. And I talk about, you know, how far is your support? Well, I'm good for this month. And people kind of think like, wow, that's not, you know, being a really good steward. Or, you know. And I think, you know what, the people I serve, they have to, every day they're waiting for their daily bread. I can live like them too. Amen? At least a little. Not to compare myself, believe me. It's our hope that weeks like this are just a little jump start for the folks that come and join us. So that when they come, when they go back to the places that God has planted them, they'll recognize the little opportunities that God gives them every day to visit a widow in distress, to have a cup of coffee or whatever you drink, tea, water, and just say, how was your day? And brighten their day. Maybe go up to that child who could use an invite to your house and their whole family. You know they've been struggling. You know they've been living on PB and J. And take them over to your house for a healthy, hearty meal. You know, the meal that you make for that person that's special in your life or that family member. Oh, so-and-so's coming. Or we're going we're gonna to pull out all the stops. We're going to set the table nice. When's the last time you just did that for someone who hasn't had a meal like that and they can't think of how for how long? That's what James is talking about. There being that kind of equity, equality in the church. Remember the early church, there wasn't one needy one among them. Why? Because from time to time, people would sell stinking land. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. Think about that. Oh, I'm just going to sell my property. You know? There's so many creative ways. Or you look at a family that you could see their kids are going to school without things they need. You with me? Do I have to go much further than that? How about taking your Kohl's 30% off card? You know what I mean? Taking a little trip one day and being a blessing. 
And it's not just for the teams that come. It's for those of us who live in a city like ours. Man, if there's ever a city that needs that right now, it's Atlantic City. We need not an academic faith. We certainly don't need any more demonic faith. We've got plenty of that going on. We need a living faith. Because people are saying, yeah, we hear you screaming you're Christian, but can you show me a little? Instead of telling me? My brothers and sisters, James has one main point, and that is real faith works. You ever know, notice, I don't know, when you're a kid or something, you see like there seems to be like a creature, like an animal or something that's laying in, in, on the ground. You kind of walk up, you're like, man, I got to poke it, see if you know, because what happens when it don't move, you know what? It's dead. And James says, examine yourself. Make sure the faith that you claim you have is the real, genuine article. And the way you know that is you put it into practice. You see a need. You don't look to see who else can meet it. You figure out, first of all, how can I meet it or maybe how can we meet it? That's the nice thing about the church. If you don't have the resources, you know brothers and sisters that might. And we connect together. And we serve together hand in hand. That's it. It's as simple as that. Not as easy to do, but it's simple to understand. Paul would agree. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the true gift of true faith. We thank you, Jesus, for examples, sometimes surprising examples, people we would never expect that you granted the gift of faith to and showed it by being risky for your sake and the sake of your people. Think of Rahab. We think of Abraham, who is now the father of all who believe because of the great faith he had. As imperfect as he was, he trusted you, Father. We pray for for us here at New City Fellowship and all of us who have joined here for worship, Lord, that you would give us that kind of faith, strengthen our faith. Help us, O Lord, by your grace to not just talk about it, but be about it. Not just tell, but show. And Lord, especially, Forgive us, forgive us, Lord, for neglecting the poor among us, for um, despising them, for treating them differently, rather than treating them the way you treat us, as dear, dearly beloved children of yours, as our brothers and sisters. God, be with this church plant, Lord. As small as we are, may we, by your grace, be a model of this living faith that works, And I pray for all our brothers and sisters that came to worship with us, Lord. Shine through them, through concrete works of mercy and grace and goodness that flow from your hand and through your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.